Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Kerry Sackville is an Australian author, columnist and social commentator. She writes regularly for Sunday Life magazine, Sydney Morning Herald Online and news.com.au. Kerry is the author of When My Husband Does the Dishes, The Little Book of Anxiety, Out There, A Survival Guide for Dating in Midlife and The Life-Changing Magic of a Little Bit of Mess. Today, I'm joined by Kerry Sackville to talk about her new book, The Secret Life of You. Kerry Sackville, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Really good to be here. Thank you for having me. A bit of alone time can change your life and maybe the world. So reads the subtitle of The Secret Life of You. But before we get into changing the world, let's clarify two etymologically similar words, alone and lonely. There's a lot of assumptions made about exactly what these two terms mean. What is the distinction and why is it important to make that distinction? When I told people I was writing a book about the importance of alone time, a lot of people heard that as being a book about loneliness. And alone time and loneliness are two very different things. You can be physically alone but not be lonely at all, and you can be surrounded by people and feel extremely lonely. So what loneliness is is the gap between the connection that you want and the connection that you are receiving at any given time. Um, So everybody's threshold for loneliness is different. It depends on a number of factors. But loneliness is a lot like hunger. You know, hunger is that signal in our body that tells us we need food. Loneliness is that signal in our body, in our mind, that tells us we need connection. And that has nothing to do with whether or not we're surrounded by people. So we can be alone and not at all lonely, or we can be in company and feel profoundly lonely and, and seeking more connection and deeper connection. Let's talk about another big word solitude. A lot of people would be familiar with the idea of a hermetic lifestyle and and individuals who seek out solitude, Uh, but we kind of sometimes might be um, inclined to think those people are a little bit odd. Um, We might think of cave dwellers, a recluse, or a yogi, um, or some other kind of ascetic lifestyle. Um, What's the problem we have with solitude? Yeah, we're we're really suspicious in our culture of solitude. We don't value solitude in our culture. And so we we look very suspiciously on people who are happy in their own company. And that's a real shame. It's also quite a new concept because, you know, back in the day, I mean, think of the 18th century when, when poets and artists and writers and musicians would retreat into solitude and often be supported by a patron to do that and be respected and be celebrated and come out of their periods of solitude with, you know, works of art. Um, but these days you see somebody retreating into solitude and you're like, are you okay? You know, you want to go and spend six weeks in a cabin in the woods? Like, oh God, are you having a breakdown? Somebody who is comfortable in their own company clearly has a rich inner life and a rich inner world. And that's something to be admired and celebrated. But because we have this intense focus on relationships as the center of all happiness and fulfillment, we feel really suspicious of people who are happy to spend time by themselves. And it's almost like we think, well, if they're comfortable spending time away from other people, then they don't care about other people. And if they don't care about other people, then maybe they're going to hurt other people. And so we go straight from being happy in their own company to loner to 
probably an axe murderer, which is ridiculous. It's a crazy leap to make. All it means when somebody is comfortable spending time alone is that they're comfortable with themselves and they get a sense of fulfillment and connection from being in their own company, from being lost in their thoughts. And that's a wonderful thing. You identify this paradox in The Secret Life of You. We need alone time to help us ward off loneliness. How does time work in our favour when we're alone? That's a really interesting one. It took me a while to get my head around it and to be able to explain it in a really cohesive way because it is a paradox and it is true. So when we're unable to spend time alone with ourselves, uh, what that means is that we are relying on other people to give us those feelings of connection all the time, right? So we really need to be around people all the time. Now, that means we're, we're giving other people almost responsibility for feeding our, our needs for connection. Now, other people are inevitably sometimes not going to be able to meet our needs. You know, all of us are unique and we can find people with whom we connect and with whom we feel comfortable, but nobody is exactly like us. And there are always for everybody, no matter how many friends you have, um, no matter how connected you are with your partner, there will be times when they can't meet your needs for connection. And so if you can't find that in relationships, then what you're going to do is feel lonely a lot of the time. And then the lonelier you are, the less likely you are to connect deeply with people as well because you're going to be using people to fill your needs in yourself instead of actually seeing them for who they are and meeting them on their level and, and enjoying them and loving them. So the more we can deeply connect with ourselves, then the less we're going to feel that desperate sense of need for connection with other people. Um, and then the more we can connect with ourselves as well, the more we can see ourselves and know who we are, right? So so alone time is, is linked to our, our capacity to know ourselves and be ourselves. Now, what do we want from connection with other people? We want to feel seen. We want to feel loved for who we are. Until you know who you are, until you can see who you are, it's very hard to feel that from other people. If you don't know who you are, how are you going to recognise when somebody else sees you for who you are? So again, paradoxically, the more we feel comfortable with ourselves, the more we can spend time alone, the more we're going to recognise those moments of connection when they come. So, in fact, our capacity to be alone and spend time in our own company actually decreases loneliness and helps us to connect more with other people, which also decreases loneliness. So it's a cycle. I suppose we're talking here about self-reflection. So self-reflection, I suppose, is a big part of this idea of solitude and embracing being alone. When you say self-reflection, so alone time is the only way that we can actually reflect. You can't, I mean, you can learn about yourself through talking to other people, but we all need that downtime to sit and, and think. And we need that downtime and time alone with our thoughts for self-awareness to work out who we are, what we want out of life, how we want to live. Um, we need that alone time to take a break from other people's opinions. That's a really big part of it because it's not just the opinions of the people um, who we're in conversation with on, you know, our partners, our, our parents, our, our children, our friends, um, but it's also the opinions that come to us through the media and through social media. We're bombarded with opinions all the time. We actually need time away from that to work out, firstly, what we think about other people and other things, and secondly, what we think about ourselves. Everybody's got their own view of us because everybody's clouded by their own you know, their own experiences and their own upbringings and their own opinions about everything. But we need to work out what we think about ourselves. There's another weird paradox about human beings in the world today, which is that, you know, we're all really concerned about our right to self-determination. 
right? And to live how we want to live and be who we want to be. And that's great. And I, I absolutely believe in that. But how can we live the way we want to live and be who we want to be if we don't spend time figuring out what that actually is and who we actually are? So we need that time to reflect and to ask ourselves questions and to be curious about ourselves the way we're curious about other people. You know, ask ourselves regularly, what do I want out of life? Am I happy? What do I want out of my career? What do I want out of my relationships? What do I think about this? You know, what do I enjoy doing? Often we kind of have these great um, periods of self-discovery in our teens or, or 20s, but then we never ask ourselves those questions again. And we're constantly changing, constantly evolving. And we need to regularly be checking in with ourselves to, to see what we think and, and what we believe. Otherwise, we're just reacting to other people all the time. In the process of self-reflection, along with thoughts, uh, feelings. Now, these are not always easy to separate or to deal with in the same way. There's a danger of becoming involved in that negative thoughts loop, feelings intruding upon our thoughts. Can they be separated? Can we work with the two? Here's the thing about feelings. We need to actually feel them in order to get through them. And I think a lot of people spend a lot of time battling their feelings. And when you say separating them, separating the thoughts from the feelings, it almost implies that we have to push those feelings down and, and kind of see our thoughts clearly. But in fact, we all feel feelings all the time. And again, part of the problem with never allowing ourselves to be alone is we never give ourselves time to feel our feelings. And again, our culture is really bad at dealing with negative feelings. We're really bad at, at dealing with grief and anger and resentment. It's almost like we feel that we should be happy all the time. And if we have these bad feelings, I'm using quotation marks, these bad feelings, then we need to get rid of them as soon as possible. In fact, the only way to get through negative feelings, whether it's grief, whether it's sadness, whether it's anger, disappointment, is to actually allow ourselves to feel them. And so alone time gives us that time and space to just sit with our feelings. You know, I interviewed a lot of people for this book and one woman who I spoke to had lost her son many years earlier and she gave herself a period of time, I think it was about 15 minutes every morning to just sit and, and be quiet and think about her son who'd passed away. And in that moment, she could feel those sad feelings and then at the end of that 15 minutes, she would get up and kind of brush herself off and she would get on with her day and feel good about the rest of her day. And when we never give ourselves that time, the feelings just, they, they just chase us around. They eventually come and bite us on the bum. So we need to feel our feelings and that gives us the space then to think our thoughts and to do everything and, and to you know have our opinions. But first off, we need to allow ourselves space to feel those feelings. I'm going to take us off on a little tangent here. Here's something I feel I'm quite good at, the art of doing nothing. Now, what is it and what isn't it? Ah. Oh. Wow, great question. Um, so when you say to people, what did you do today? And they said, I did nothing. What they're actually saying is, oh, well, I was on my computer for a bit, kind of scrolling through, you know, scrolling through my Twitter feed and I was looking at the news and then I did a bit of online shopping and then I went for a walk but I was, I was listening to a podcast. When I'm talking about doing nothing, I'm talking about actually powering down completely, getting rid of all content and being with your thoughts. Now that can mean pottering around the house and letting your mind wander. It can mean going for a walk without any devices and you know, getting lost in reflection or getting lost in a daydream. But doing nothing when you're doing it with social media or when you're doing it with your device actually isn't doing nothing. It's consuming content. And again, that's fine. I'm not saying we should never 
be online. I mean, we're online right now. But I'm saying we need times where we're unplugged. We need times for our brains to power down. Um, we need times just to decompress. You know, somebody else that I interviewed said to me that she needed alone time because there were knots in her brain that needed untangling. And I just love that. I mean, that was just such a brilliant way of expressing it. And it's true when we are constantly consuming content all the time, it doesn't give our brains that time to, to power down. And, you know, our brains haven't really evolved that much from our cavemen days, right? We're not designed to be consuming content all the time. We're not designed to have that much stimulation. It creates anxiety. It creates depression. It creates stress. So doing nothing to me means unplugging from devices, not talking to other people and just being with ourselves. And I'm very good at that too. I can actually, you know, I can sit on the couch and stare into space for an hour. And I think that's really valuable time. You know, if I had made a time to, to meet you, say, for coffee and we were talking to each other, that would be considered an activity. But why isn't it considered an activity when I am meeting myself for coffee? How do I know if I'm doing nothing? I guess I, I don't know that you've been doing nothing until afterwards yeah well that's right a lot of the time I'll get into the shower um, and I think I'm just gonna you know quickly quickly have my shower and get out and then you know I'll be lost in in this daydream or suddenly the answer will come to me from a problem that I've been trying to solve for ages and I get out and I realize wow that was actually really productive you know I'd got in there just to clean myself and I, I came out having had this you know incredible time alone with my thoughts doesn't matter as long as we carve out that space for ourselves. You touched on this a little earlier. It's this idea that we are connected and perhaps more connected than ever, uh, digitally at least. Are we more connected? And what is being connected anyway? And and what do we do when that connectedness, sorry about these, these three-pronged question, uh, what do we do when that connectedness rebounds on us in the form of online criticism, trolling, uh, that leaves us in a state of confusion and, and we're unable to break that cycle. And I know that happens to a lot of people. Let me start by saying the apps are designed to be addictive. So social media is literally created to keep you on social media. So the apps use the same technologies as gambling machines, right, as slot machines, poker machines. We fall into these loops where we can get completely stuck on an app for minutes, sometimes hours at a time. And this is what happens with YouTube, for example, when they feed you, you know, one video after another. It happens on Instagram. You know, I might go on to check just my messages and find, oh, God, I've just lost, you know, an hour to scrolling through reels. It's not, it's not your fault. It's The apps are designed to do that. Um, but social media gives us this sense of connectedness, um, which is very different to genuine connection. And it's problematic in a lot of ways. So... As I said, I've said a few times, human beings need connection. We need proper deep connections with other people. Social media gives us the illusion of being connected, but it's not real connection. So it's what we call a low friction interaction. So you can comment on a post, you can send a text message to someone, and there's nothing much at stake. You're just sitting there um, away from them, typing out something. You can think about it, you can edit it. And it's very different, as you know, from face-to-face -face interaction. So we're here having a conversation now. We can see each other's faces. I can see your facial expressions. We're, we're genuinely connecting. Um, we're talking to each other. If I was talking to you via text message, it would be completely different. There would be no spontaneity. There would be no reading your body language and seeing, oh, is he interested? Is he not? I could write something and then go back and edit it. 
So when we are spending a great deal of time in these very, very low friction interactions that keep us connected but not actually connecting, we're not then putting energy into the kinds of interactions um, that genuinely feed and nurture us. But, you know, So ideally we would have face-to-face interactions with people. The next step down is something like Zoom or a telephone call. Um, and text messages and, and social media messages are way, way down the hierarchy. Again, because we're spending so much time or when we're spending so much time on social media and we're not spending that time deeply connecting, we can feel incredibly lonely and disconnected. And so what that means is we're then turning more to social media to try and alleviate that loneliness. But the loneliness gets worse because, again, we're not really connecting. We're just having connectivity. So it creates this loneliness loop. For those of us who were in lockdown during COVID, you know, if social media alleviated loneliness, none of us would have felt lonely, but people were feeling intensely lonely. And that loneliness led to such a, a feeling of emptiness that they were then trying to alleviate that by spending more time on social media. That's why switching off and shutting down is so important. And then, of course, as you talk about trolling and negative comments, you know, we're just allowing all of that negativity into our psyche and into our spaces and, you know, it affects our self-esteem. And then when you're very online, again, because the apps are designed to do this, you, you become almost dependent on the likes and the shares and the comments and you see young people posting photos and then they're waiting for the comments to to roll in and the likes. And what happens then is that it's almost outsourcing our feelings of self-esteem. So we are then dependent on other people on the internet, often random strangers, to feed us and nurture us and make us feel okay about ourselves. And, you know, the problems with that are, are pretty clear. If we don't get that from them, um, then we're going to feel empty inside. So we have to work at, at being able to feed ourselves and to be able to give ourselves those feelings of self-esteem. Otherwise, we are standing on really, really shaky ground. I'm going to take us off on another tangent. Listeners might be aware of the TV series that uh, sends candidates out into the wilderness oh. to see who can last the longest. Alone. I love that show. It's acknowledged that uh, these kinds of challenges require inordinate amounts of mental toughness. That's one thing that... Uh, and it comes out of these things. That, that's a characteristic which is cultivated into certain groups, um, if not more broadly. Are concepts like solitude and self-reflection at odds with the idea of mental toughness? I think the ability to spend time alone is really important for resilience. And I think that a person who is able to spend time in their own company is by definition really resilient. Um, and, you know, talking about the show alone, something so fascinating happens um, I've watched many seasons of Alone now and I see it play out over and over again. So, you know, contestants are sent out into the wilderness to survive on their own with a few survival items and they need to build shelters, they need to find food, they need to build fires. So those are the three things and, and find water. So when the the first part of the the journey for each of them is to get their immediate needs met. So they have to build their shelter, find their water and food supply, build a fire and stay warm. A lot of them can't do that and they drop out. But something really interesting happens once they've done all that, once they've met their hierarchy of needs, and that's when the psychological game starts to come in and that's when a lot of them fall apart. Yeah, because once they don't have that purpose anymore, they're not struggling just to survive, they're literally sitting there alone with their thoughts and alone with themselves and a lot of them at that point start to crumble and they miss home and they miss their family and they start to wonder why they're doing it in the first place and have little breakdowns, and a lot of them then tap out, as they say. So those who can survive, those who can last after their initial needs have been met, are the ones who really are mentally tough. And, you know, I, I read lots of stories 
when I was researching this book about people who survived, for example, in solitary confinement for years at a time. They all had incredible inner resources. Kylie Moore Gilbert, who was, you know, the Australian who was imprisoned in Iran was, was an example of that. And, you know, she ended up learning another language and she read and, and found a purpose and, and dove into her memories. And other prisoners who, who've been in prison for long periods of time did things like um, journey through the world in their own minds or compose poetry in their heads or do maths calculations. So people with really good inner resources are much more able to survive um, in difficult conditions alone. So I think absolutely the capacity to endure or even enjoy solitude is a big part of resilience and mental toughness. And that's where we might finish. And that's really to do with those strategies. What are the strategies for embracing being alone? You've mentioned a few just there. but um, And, and more, more than that, to enjoy being alone. Yeah, so I've got, I've got a lot of different strategies in my book. Um, but just a couple that people can get started with immediately. Uh, one of them is to be in nature. So we human beings are genetically programmed to find nature soothing. I am not a spiritual person. This is not woo-woo. This is very practical and proven. To be near the water, to be out with your feet on grass, to be looking at a tree actually has you know, very soothing properties to us and, and helps to calm us. So if you struggle with solitude, a way to manage that is to spend a few minutes out in nature. Having pets is another one. Um, so if you struggle to be alone without you know, consuming content on social media or without other people, being alone with a pet is a really good way to start because you are alone but not but not by yourself. Um, and another thing that I feel that we human beings don't do nearly enough is thinking for pleasure. So we're all incredibly good at catastrophizing and thinking the worst and and ruminating and reflecting on everything that we're not happy with and everything that has gone wrong and can go wrong. But we can also use our minds to think for pleasure. We can also use our minds to um, go back through our memories of, of the happiest times in our lives or uh, we can use our minds to fantasise about something we would like to happen. You know, I for many years would fantasise about winning an Oscar. Um, I wasn't actually an actor. <laughs> I hadn't actually written any movie script. How's that going? It's not going well, but I've got my whole my dress plotted out and I know how I'm going to do my hair. But, you know, that would give me a lot of joy. A lot of people I spoke to would fantasise about winning the lottery, which is also a good one, how I would spend my money. We can do that. We can take a trip in our mind through um, a place where we've lived before or have a conversation with someone we'd like to have a conversation with. So to use our inner resources for enjoyment instead of hurting ourselves is really important and something that I think a lot of people don't even know they're allowed to do. So that's something I would recommend starting with. I suspect that this is an ongoing project for just about every human being. And Kerry Sackville, thanks so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. It's been a great pleasure. I've been talking to Kerry Sackville about her new book, The Secret Life of You. It's published by Pantera, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.